Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. Those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. So we are going to dive right into part two of the history of the U.S.-China beef part two. All right. So and we got a lot to cover, so we're just going straight into this thing, okay? Just right in there. Oh, But we do have to have tradition. We have to have our... um. Our inaugural sip here. Mm. Uh, tonight I've got a I've got a nice Earl Grey tea is what we're rolling with, um, so that's good. We got that going. Inaugural sip is down. The show is officially started. And by the time you guys hear this, hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving. Got to spend some time with your uh, family, friends, loved ones, whatever the case may be, and uh, you know eat your. Your ideal bird of choice for your Thanksgiving meal. And for my overseas listeners, um, you know, you guys didn't have a Thanksgiving. That's an American thing. So hopefully you just had, you know, a good past week. Anyway, now the pleasantries are knocked out. Let's get into this. So in our last episode, we covered the abortive birth of the Republic of China from the ashes of the Qing Dynasty, the warlord era that followed the Civil War, the eventual rise of the Communist uh, Party of China, and the Civil War that they had with the Republic of China, how it eventually resulted in a truce to fight off the Japanese invasion during World War II before resuming and ending in the fall of mainland China to the Communist Party and the Republic of China being relegated to the island of Taiwan, where they remain today. And following the end of the war, China realized that the U.S. was getting awfully cozy with Korea, and it would put them uncomfortably close to the Chinese border if all of Korea was united by a friendly U.S. government. And so they decided to take advantage of the U.S. overreacting to communist parties across the globe and prop up North Korea as a method of both keeping the U.S. distracted while they sorted out various internal issues and to create a buffer state between themselves and the U.S., And there you have it. For anyone who missed the first episode, there you go. For those of you that listened to the first episode and just got the entire thing recapped in about two and a half minutes, um, well, to to paraphrase the dude, I never claimed to be into the whole brevity thing, did I? Okay, so that, that gets us up to speed of where we're at. So China in the 1950s was, um, was, uh, you know, looking at their situation, they decided to help another Asian country that had a, a burgeoning communist revolution kicking off. And this one was against the French who had occupied Vietnam for a number of years pre and post World War II. Now, China started off simple, sending military advisors to assist the Viet Minh, uh, who would eventually transform into the Viet Cong. 
And uh, they were basically the group that was trying to get rid of the uh, French colonial uh, powers and be an independent nation. And uh, eventually they decided to start escalating by sending weapons and trainers to get the guerrilla fighters up to speed and, uh, you know, to deal with fighting an enemy as organized and capable as the French military. And I know post-World War II that may sound silly, but yes, the French military was a capable and organized and well-trained machine, but they had also been bogged down in the whole Indochina region for a long time, and they were fairly sapped of strength after a lengthy war against the Germans and then rolling right out of that into, um, uh, you know, into a an uprising in what would become uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, those kind of areas. Now, the U.S. was still pretty much in the mindset of thinking that every time there was a communist uprising happening in the world, it was the shadowed hand of the Soviet Union seeking to push for their global revolution of workers. Little did the U.S. realize at the time it was actually more the Chinese pushing for the Vietnamese communist revolution as both a distraction for the U.S. And by 1954, the U.S. had spent over a billion dollars of aid to fund the French military effort. The U.S. was actually quite involved in trying to keep France in charge of that whole region, feeling that it was um, a good counterbalance to what they still thought of as the Soviet Union being the biggest problem. Now, the problem is uh, that by May of 1954, the French had kind of customarily done their thing, threw in the towel, and granted Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos independence. Now, Vietnam pretty quickly split into two nations with the non-communists in the south and following what's becoming geographic typecasting at this point, the communists setting up shop in the north. Now, ironically, considering the fact the Republicans are often seen as the hawks and the Democrats as the doves, it was a little surprising that Democratic senator and future president and Democratic Party banner man John F. Kennedy who uttered the following statement, quote, If Vietnam falls, then Burma, Thailand, India, Japan, the Philippines, and obviously Laos and Cambodia are among those whose security would be threatened if the red tide of communism overflowed into Vietnam. And Kennedy very succinctly here sums up what was a big thought process in politics and geopolitics at the time, and that is the the domino effect of communism. If one country goes down to communism, then it's going to spill over into all the neighboring countries. And um, so the idea was that the U.S., uh, by Kennedy and McCarthy and several other people's thinking, the U.S. had to be really aggressive at stomping out the spread of communism in other countries, no matter the cost. And while the Vietnam War is easily the material of its own series of episodes, I'm not going to get into the super nitty-gritty here. The bottom line is that Kennedy ended up sending supplies and advisors to the fledgling South Vietnamese, and the Chinese matched that support in measure with the North in a play eerily similar to the Korean War only a handful of years before. Now, eventually by the 60s, it wasn't just weapons and supplies that were sent, but troops and hundreds of thousands of them by that, as well as fighter jets, bombers, all those sorts of things, which would ultimately lead to direct conflict with Chinese troops who were operating um, in Vietnam. Well, not necessarily directly Chinese, but a lot of very Chinese-backed uh, things happening there with the Viet Cong. Okay, now keep in mind that Russian-Chinese tensions also started to go south around this time in something that was known as the Sino-Soviet split. 
Now, the theory uh, that the Soviet Union and Communist China – the theory is that, that the Soviet Union and Communist China should have been airtight allies. And while they were for a little while, it didn't last long for a number of reasons. First off, Stalin had died, leaving Khrushchev in charge of the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev was not a big Stalin fan. In fact, he spent a lot of his time in office doing everything in his power to completely undercut Stalin's reputation so the Soviet Union would be a very different style of leadership. Mao, on the other hand, in China, was doing everything in his power to emulate Stalin, who had a very brutal, iron-fisted way of doing things, and Mao thought that was the way that a communist premier, a communist leader, needed to oversee things. Stalin was the pinnacle to Mao in many ways of what a leader should be. And so when he sees Khrushchev roll into office in the Soviet Union and start undermining Stalin and changing things and trying to be a little bit more even-handed and at least by Soviet standards and all of this, uh, Mao flat out just said, I think Khrushchev is a weak leader and he's, you know, he's trash talking my boy Stalin. So this obviously didn't work out real well. The, the second big issue that sort of um, led to the Sino-Soviet split is the fact that Mao had sort of concocted his own version of Marxism-Leninism that was tailored to Chinese culture, which he called Mao Zedong thought. And he actually enshrined Mao Zedong thought in the constitution of China. And so this caused a lot of problems because it pissed off a bunch of Soviet hardliners who felt that Mao was effectively um, creating a less pure, uh, less puritanical, um, less Lenin-approved version of communism, which ironically for a state that doesn't believe in religion, that was a huge dogmatic no-no. You do not improve upon the works of Marx or Lenin. They had it right. They gave you the stone tablets with how things were supposed to be done in a socialist communist regime. And if you don't follow it, fuck you. You're an apostate. We don't tolerate that shit. You don't change what Lenin and Marx wrote. Well, Mao just didn't give a shit about that. He was going to do his own thing. So next, Mao felt that Khrushchev's desire for peaceful coexistence with the West would prevent China from becoming as powerful as it could be because China was effectively being boxed in by the U.S. and its allies. And lastly, Khrushchev <laughs> created a repayment plan for the aid the Soviets had given the Chinese during their war, which Mao had assumed was going to be free aid from one Soviet state to another. And when he found out from Khrushchev that he was going to have to repay all of that aid, it really pissed him off. And he started accusing Khrushchev of being no better than the upper-class moneylenders preying on the indigent, i.e. China. And it set up this thing that still existed all the way up until the fall of the Soviet Union that Mao started talking about the Soviet Union as this decadent, capitalistic, um, imperialistic nation that only masqueraded itself as a communist country. But the real communists, the actual true believers, that was just China and the people China backed. So it's really interesting how much of a quasi-religious thing this was, which led to a split between the two big communist powers of the world. 
At any rate, with the People's Republic of China developing nuclear weapons in um, 1964, Mao took a much more aggressive approach to dealing with the U.S., while Khrushchev was looking for much more peaceful methods of coexisting. So Mao also kicked off his grand plan during this time, which was known as the Great Leap Forward, an economic and social campaign designed to quickly move China from being a predominantly agrarian farm-based economy to an industrialized economy through a massive planned and centrally controlled set of economic uh, directions, the likes of which the Soviets had given up on decades before is something that would never work. But, you know... uh, uh, hey, Mao's Mao's created Mao Zedong thought. All right, he's got this. He knows what needs to happen. He doesn't need. He doesn't. Uh, you know, he's not going to make the same mistakes the Soviets made. Right. Uh, well, true. He was going to make even bigger, more impressive mistakes because this caused the absolutely massive famine of China, the Great Famine, as it was called. And the records are a bit scarce during that time. But between fifteen on the low end and fifty. Five million people on the high end were said to have starved to death from 1958 to 1962. Essentially, it was an incredibly expensive and astonishingly dangerous failure that nearly ended Mao's reign. Now, once again, the great leap forward uh, was taken, you know, once it ended, uh, Mao decided to kick off the forced cultural revolution, which had the stated goal of purging all non-communist elements from society, religion, history, ceremonies, art, entertainment, whatever. And it would run from 1966 to 1976 when Mao died and would be widely remembered by a lot of people as the 10 years of chaos. The idea that Mao had was to destroy anything that was non-communist or existed from a pre-communist era. Everything from old customs like religions, traditional weddings, um, you know, anything that didn't include communist to commun- uh, references to communist ideals or to ideals of Mao, any old habits, old ideas, any of that stuff. Religious sites were destroyed, historical artifacts were demolished, history books from pre-communist China were burned. It didn't matter. Uh, but it also included anyone in the government who was questioning Mao's ideas, resulting in thousands upon thousands being purged from society. Many were sent to work camps for quote-unquote re-education, and many, many more uh, were simply taken outside behind the woodshed and shot in the back of the head. During the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, China effectively cut off all outside relations with the United States, which in their mind was still the great enemy of the communist revolution globally and um, the world pinnacle of decadent and bourgeoisie lifestyles. So this was quite a thing. Mao had these crazy ideas to try and fast forward the development of China. And while I don't think any of his stuff actually worked, it just caused chaos and hardship for everybody, it is funny how quickly China did manage to sort of get itself there. But all that really, really started taking off like in the 80s and and the 90s and so forth, you know, pretty much once Mao was out of their way. So... By 1971, Nixon has been elected president of the United States, and he actually starts secret talks with China as part of his plan to open China to the West and rebuild relations. And by 1972, Nixon historically was the first U.S. president to ever visit the People's Republic of China on an official state visit or in any capacity for that matter. 
Um, there's pictures of Nixon walking along the Great Wall of China. There's the old saying, only Nixon go to China, blah, blah, blah. We, we've, all, we've all heard of that. Or maybe you haven't, but that's the thing that happened. So this visit was the beginning of a period of time with improved relations with China. Mao died in 1976, allowing less extreme elements to take over. And while the U.S. was still refusing to acknowledge Taiwan as a Chinese possession, China was still a communist country that backed Vietnam and North Korea. After all, much of the anti-U.S. propaganda in China did start to disappear and relations began to creep their way into normalizing. So... While this is happening, relations with Russia and China are completely on the rocks. China is feeling more and more isolated than ever. The rapprochement with the U.S. is, and I, uh, it, you know, it was, it was just what the U.S. wanted. For China, it was also kind of a desirable thing, too. I mean, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in the Cold War. They were historically not friendly. And at this point, China had fully detached itself from any kind of business dealings with the U.S. Things were extremely frosty, especially during the latter days of Mao. And so Mao kind of started to think, well, maybe better relations with the U.S. is not such a bad thing because we have a common enemy in the Soviet Union. So by 1979, official diplomatic relations were even initiated for the first time between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America. Up until then, they did not officially acknowledge each other we didn't have ambassadors. There were no embassies. None of that. There was no nothing. Uh, so 79, that all changed. Um, during the administration of Ronald Reagan, U.S.-Chinese relations were kind of having some weird peaks and valleys. On the one hand, Reagan visited Beijing, and that was highly publicized. He gave a speech that started off well, but then Reagan being Reagan went a bit off the script and he started to praise capitalism, trash the Soviet Union, and talk about the wonders of freedom, democracy, and religion. Um, needless to say, when he started going on about his personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Chinese state was kind of like, well, we're not putting this on television, and um, yeah, Mr. President, we need to just shut the fuck up and stop saying those things in our, in our country. They weren't super thrilled about it. To make matters worse, in 1983, Chinese tennis player... Ha Na defected to the United States and then appeared on an Olympic parade float in New York City holding a flag of Taiwan. And when they asked for the U.S. to extradite this person back to the U.S., the U.S. said no, which further pissed off the PRC. Now, the relations with China and the U.S. would kind of just be all over the charts during the 80s under Reagan. Like, Reagan would do all sorts of things, you know, against the Soviet Union, which China was all for because they didn't like the Soviet Union. On the other hand, he was just a super cowboy capitalist, and they didn't like that. So it really all over the place. By 1989, there was the Tiananmen Square protest, which where a lot of folks, primarily university students, protested the lack of real democracy in China, which led to a swift and brutal suppression. Now, unfortunately, the uh, opening of doors to the U.S. and Western culture had the effect of sparking a lot of dissent, just as Chairman Mao had always predicted. That was part of the reason why he wanted to do his cultural revolution, shut China off from the West, shut it off from the rest of the world, because he always feared that if those ideas got into China, it was going to cause chaos um, because you wouldn't be able to control the way people were educated and how they thought about things. So... Once the um, Tiananmen Square protests happened, the Communist Party saw the first sparks of real dissent from the population, 
And then, only two years later, they watched the Soviet Union collapse in an eerily similar situation. And it was very clear if something wasn't done to stem the tide of the unrest, the People's Republic of China would suffer the same fate. And this would start a whole series of things. I mean, yes, there was the brutal crackdown of protesters at Tiananmen, but it also caused a lot of U.S. backlash against China from Americans who were otherwise not really thinking China was all that bad. Tourist traffic fell sharply. The Bush administration denounced the repression and suspended certain trade and investment programs, et cetera. And that's Bush one, by the way. But China also started to make some inroads internally. They started to introduce limited capitalism, letting people own businesses. They started to do things to ease a lot of the um, really hardcore communist tenants that had been sort of the, the milestone for China with the idea that they had to provide some kind of a relief valve to prevent those protests. I mean, listen, letting people own personal property and stores and get in business and generate some degree of wealth was a price they were willing to pay that did not include them having to actually change their government and give the peasants you know, an actual seat at the table and turn the country into a true democracy. So that was where there was the, there, that was the give and take they were willing to have. Um, at any rate, during Bush Sr., there were a few other things. For instance, the U.S. and Chinese military arms sales were severed, um, and which have obviously not been restored. Uh, there were a lot of um, investment and trade programs that Bush uh, Sr. put an end to after the Tiananmen protests. And so this is where tensions start to go from – a lot of the tensions with the U.S. and China earlier on are predicated around China has historically been bullied by colonial powers. China is now run by a communist government. Communist governments hate the idea of decadent capitalists, which the U.S. is the pinnacle of. They hate the idea of colonial powers, which they see the U.S. at this point as being the colonial world power that still exists, the one empire that hasn't been dismantled. And so you have all these things that are kind of China-centric around the negativity of the relationship. And once things started to open up and look good, then all of a sudden you're getting protests about democracy and these infectious evil Western ideas are, you know, tearing at the fabric of our pure Mao Zedong thought socialism. And that was no good. But at this point, we start to have some periods of time where the U.S. actually fucks up its foreign policy with China in some pretty significant ways. Um, you know, up until now, the U.S. has kind of been doing the whole hearts and minds thing, right? Like, let's just talk about how cool democracy is. Let's sell you some goods. Let's do all that. Hell, it pretty much worked for the Soviet Union, right? Like, eventually, you just outspent the Soviet Union, and, um, you know, there you go. But with the Chinese, there were some some different circumstances that, uh, that, that got dictated. First off, um, in 1996, uh, there was a wave of anti-American but dolled up as anti-imperialist manifestos that came out in China, which some thought were pretty much, you know, probably sponsored or in some way directed by the government. Um, but with that being said, you also have to keep in mind from the Chinese standpoint, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was not a lot of real impetus for there to be U.S.-Chinese relations. The The whole cause for reconciliation between the two kind of wasn't there. They didn't have a mutual enemy. And now, 
you've got a China which is growing. It's becoming economically powerful. It's you know developing nuclear weapons and a more advanced military and all of this. And they're looking around at a U.S. that has Australia, the Philippines, Korea or South Korea, Japan, all the you know, Taiwan, all these places the U.S. has that bottles them up. And they're starting to see the U.S. as less of an ally against the potential you know Soviet aggression, but more of a you're the people that are boxing us in and suppressing us just like all these other colonial powers have done throughout our history. Now, during the Clinton administration, old Slick Willie sharply criticized George Bush Sr. for prioritizing profitable trade relationships over human rights issues that were getting reported in China. That said, Clinton would also be the one to eventually de-link human rights issues um, with the status of most favored nation, which China had. Uh, now, Clinton, to be fair, started off strong. He started off doing some very Trump-like tariffs and restrictions on China. He um, demanded a number of Chinese actions in order to continue trade, such as you know foregoing human rights, letting Tibet be independent, letting Taiwan be independent, um, etc. But China just absolutely refused to make any concessions on this point, and when they refused long enough and Clinton saw that it was going to cause economic issues, he eventually buckled under admitted defeat and went back to business as usual with China. So that's pretty much how that would go with Clinton. But there were a few interesting bumps along the way. First off, in 1993, very early Clinton administration, the U.S. Navy stopped the Yinhe, a Chinese container ship that was sailing in international waters, and proceeded to impound the ship for 24 days for inspection because the U.S. intelligence agency, the CIA, had determined that it was carrying precursors to chemical weapons and it was selling to Iran. So the U.S. authorized the Navy to impound the ship, take it, arrest the people, search the ship, search all the cargo, do all the things, held it for nearly a month um, on the word of the CIA that this thing was sending chemical weapons to Iran, and that was a big no-no. Now, as you can guess, if you're listening to this show, obviously it was not carrying any illegal contraband. The U.S. intelligence had identified the wrong ship, and um, it was a massive debacle. China demanded a former apology from President Clinton. They demanded compensation for the ship's lost time and cargo. And naturally, <laughs> the U.S., under the direction of El Presidente Bill Clinton, refused to do. This would begin the long string of ongoing troubles at sea between the U.S. and China. And to be fair, this was a U.S. fuck-up. CIA identified the wrong ship. The U.S. went in guns a-blazing and, and boarded the thing and took it, discovered they were completely off about what they were doing, and then when they were asked for an apology, said, suck it, we're not, we're not doing shit. That did not endear the U.S. to China. This this would, you know, be a very – this was a bad move on the U.S.'s part. But unfortunately, it doesn't just stop there. Now, Clinton did eventually try and smooth things over by going to China in 1998 and doing a goodwill tour. Now, ultimately, very little was gained, and the Republicans ironically – bitched that Clinton didn't do enough to address human rights conditions during his trip to China. Now, uh, as you guys know, I, um, I'll i trash everybody equally on this show, and I'll play favorites. But I want to point out some, some beautiful hypocrisy here. When it was Bush in charge, 
it was all about how with the Republicans, we need to have trade with China and free trade. We need to prioritize trade with them over everything else. And when it's Clinton in charge, it's the Republicans bitching about human rights. You're not doing enough about human rights. Like, what did you expect Clinton was going to do while he's over there? What, what, what did you guys what, – what, was he going to go over there and, like, start busting down internment camps and, and, and re-education centers and, like, freeing everybody himself? Is that what you expected Clinton to do? I mean, what, what did we think was going to happen? Also, four years earlier, you guys are going on with Bush Sr. about how trade is what needs to be prioritized and we can worry about human rights. Just listen, okay? Both sides – Pick a position and just kind of hang out with it for a while, okay? Don't just change it based on whose office. That that shit drives me insane. I gotta have a sip of my tea just thinking about it. Mm. All right, so at any rate, um, in 1999, year later, in the midst of the NATO bombing campaign in Yugoslavia, an American B-2 bomber drops a JDAM on the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, killing three and injuring 20. Now, supposedly, according to the U.S. Air Force, the coordinates for the bombs were given to them by the CIA. And when the CIA was questioned, they said, oh, shit, guys, we had a bad map. Sorry about that. China was naturally outraged that their embassy was bombed. And uh, that's kind of understandable. Furthermore, in China, as you would imagine, there was a lot of anti-U.S. Uh, protests and unrest outside U.S. embassies, damaging some, and China demanded some sort of restitution. Now, Clinton did give a formal apology and eventually uh, offered a multi-million dollar settlement to be paid out to the families of those that were killed and injured. The Chinese have never fully accepted that the CIA was so incompetent as to have the wrong maps of a city they were bombing, especially since CIA incompetence has already been the excuse for a previous uh, debacle. You remember that ship that the U.S. seized back in 1993? So there's a lot of speculation about what happened here. Was it really just the CIA being completely incompetent? I mean, are they just so shit at their job that they've they've put in the the coordinates for the embassy and these bombs, you know, and this was the only bombing mission the CIA provided coordinates for, so it seems kind of suspicious. Um, some people have suspected that there was uh, maybe some contraband that they were trying to wipe out and this was the way they were going to do it or there were uh, was some sort of a strike here. You know, there's, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories that, that this was not – and I do have to say, not being a huge conspiracy theorist guy, but it is curious – that the only mission the CIA provided targeting coordinates for is one where the CIA said, whoops, or <laughs> oh, didn't realize we didn't, we, we were we were using old Apple Maps, we weren't using Google Maps, so we hit the wrong joint. Sorry, guys. Like, I don't know, man. That just, that is odd. Uh, but also it's a government agency, so incompetence is always a potentially valid defense. So I don't know. But I can see why China was pretty incensed by that. Um Fast forward just a couple months later in 1999, a Chinese spy is found to be working for the U.S. nuclear lab in Los Alamos and passing off uh, secrets to China about U.S. nuclear weapons development. So obviously that doesn't help things. And as you see at this point, we are really getting into a tit-for-tat Cold War-style thing, except the U.S. has probably blown up more embassies than I think we did in the Cold War of the, uh, the Soviets. So there's that. Anyway, by the time of the Bush administration, Bush Jr. this time, um, we had the 
Hanan Island incident of April 2001 when an EP-3 surveillance aircraft from the U.S. Air Force, uh, or actually I think that's the U.S. Navy, collided with a Chinese J-8 fighter in the South China Sea. And tensions were again mounting um, as Bush started referring to China as the strategic competitor and their strategic adversary. And that kind of inflammatory language dialed things up just a little bit and obviously pissed China off. But funnily enough, by uh, September 11th, Bush's tune towards China started to change. And not long after the towers went down, W started referring to China as a new strategic partner in the war on terror. Bush even started postponing arms sales to Taiwan and uh, having a lot of meetings and um, interagency cooperation with the Communist Party of China. And the reason was that uh, there were a lot of reasons for the two countries to work together during the War on Terror, which we'll cover. One of the War on Terror's unexpected byproducts was a brief rapprochement in U.S.-Chinese relations, the reason being that China had its own terrorist issues from Muslim groups, and so they found common ground with the U.S. on that position. They also liked the idea of the United States being tied up in an endless Middle Eastern war, kind of like how Russia was in the last days of the Soviet Union. But they did send money and supplies to the U.S. and NATO operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they even voted in support of the U.S. operations um, at the U.N., which is kind of shocking considering where our relationship with China is today. That being said, in 2002, <laughs> because the fucking CIA, man, in 2002, the so the U.S., a company of the U.S. had been contracted to build a plane for the president of China. And in 2002, the plane was checked over by Chinese intelligence where they discovered 20 built-in satellite-controlled listening devices to which nobody's denied. Like, nobody's answered to it, but nobody's flat-out denied it. And it's fucking hell, CIA, really? I hope a lot of this is like... Okay, listen. Like, Boris Johnson, right? He is a buffoon of a man. Um, to all my, my British uh, brethren and sister that listen to the show, Boris Johnson's a buffoon of a man, right? Like, he's just a comical individual. Not unlike Trump in a lot of ways, in my opinion. But Boris Johnson really is, he just kind of takes it up to another level in a lot of ways. Um, but here's the thing. I think Boris Johnson seems like a sort of bumbling, silly, overly, like stereotypically crazy British guy. But it, it's very much like a calculated uh, thing with him, right? Like he sort of knows that if he, he just... Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well, yeah, 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 Boris Johnson. I'm going to skydive in on this thing with British flags, and I'll get stuck for a few hours. It was very silly. But he knows what he's doing. Like, he's not an idiot. He's, it's all part of, like, the sort of the thing he's, it's part of his, he's got the mask, and he's playing the card game. And, he, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson's a crazy guy, but he's he's aware of what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with this is, is this the deal with the CIA? Like, is the CIA just appearing to be a bumbling, incompetent organization, but they're actually really doing some crafty shit that we don't know about in the background? Or are they just, like, fucking up left, right, and center? Listen, if you work for the CIA and you listen to the show, please feel free to write me in at jordan.driscoll at OGGN.com 
and let me know what the truth is. I want to believe you guys know what you're doing. I want to have faith that y'all are on top of this. But when I see all this sort of stuff happen just time and again, and the answer is, whoops, wrong map, I just, I, 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 I got to ask, okay? Write me in, tell me, listen, I won't say anything on the air. I won't bust your cover, but I just really want to know if this is all part of like y'all's brilliant plan. Anyway, we got to keep moving. We're we're running. We got a lot to cover. It's still still stuff to do. So we're we're gonna charge on. But CIA, write me and let me know. Um, okay, so moving right along, we get to the Obama administration. Now, during the Obama McCain presidential campaign, uh, both parties were talking about cooperation with China on a lot of big issues. But on trade policy, they had very different thoughts. What's funny is. McCain, unsurprisingly, was a big believer in open and free market capitalism in China, and that's the way that you you win. But Obama was actually kind of interesting because Obama spent a lot of time during his first election cycle talking about how uh, China was deliberately setting their currency low to benefit Chinese exports. And what's ironic about that is that is literally the exact same argument that President Trump would later make about China less than a decade later when he kicked off the trade war with China. It's just fascinating to me that Trump and Obama said the exact same things about China um, over the course of this decade. Uh, that's very – but the, the Obama administration with China, though, is very interesting. We'll get into that here in a second. So – the Obama administration has more rounds of dialogue with China than any presidential administration thus far in the history of the U.S. He spent a lot of time talking with China. But Obama took a surprisingly hawkish stance with China, and I honestly, until I did the research for the show, was not even aware just how hard Barack Obama was on China in some ways. I mean, it's a little surprising. So, so take a listen here. So first off, he restarted the Taiwan arms sales, which, as you recall, Bush Jr. had actually backburnered to avoid pissing off China. Barack Obama's position was, we're going to sell arms to Taiwan. If China doesn't like it, they can deal with it. Bush didn't want to piss him off. I don't give a shit. We're going to sell weapons to Taiwan, and you know, strategically, we, we don't want to see China conquer them, so there it is. Next, he visited with the Dalai Lama, which was also a move that really annoyed Chinese leadership, who considers him to be a rebel leader. <clears throat> and Obama's answer to that was, it's not my fucking problem if you don't like him. I mean, bolder than any U.S. president at this point. Like, I, I've got to give him some points on that. Like, every other U.S. president had been much more touchy-feely with the, with the Chinese. And, and Obama just kind of was like, yeah, fuck it, man. I don't care if you like it or not. Um... Obama also started the now still ongoing Freedom of Navigation exercises where the U.S. Navy was to dispatch ships to sail through the South China Sea in waters that China claimed and was contesting with multiple other nations. Obama started that uh, on the pretext of, you're claiming these waters, international law says they're not yours, I'm going to sail U.S. naval ships in there, and you're not going to attack us, and we're going to show the rest of the world that you can sail in these waters with impunity. That was Obama that started that. Just wild. Now, despite Obama's rather hawkish behavior, he also managed to get some stuff done with China, which is kind of unusual. Like, for instance, he convinced uh, China during that time to drop the amount of oil they were producing from a—look at that. We even tied energy into this. What are you going to do? But he convinced 
China to stop buying Iranian oil, at least for a period of time, till relations tanked again, um, from Iran. And he also convinced uh, China to work with the U.S. on sanctions against North Korea regarding nuclear weapons development. China doesn't really want a super nuclear-armed North Korea under the Kim Jong dynasty any more than the U.S. does for reasons that I've covered on previous shows and I'll probably cover again at some point in the future. But the point is Obama was not only like doing shit that pissed China off and rolling naval ships through their waters and doing shows of force. He was also getting him to work with him on stuff. I mean, honestly, I'm genuinely surprised by this. I did not think he had he'd taken as hard of a stance with China as he had or that he had accomplished as much as he had with China. So, I mean, I will give points to President Obama. He did more here than I, I realized. Um, so, anyway, uh, that being said, if you think the Obama administration was – more hawkish than China than you might have imagined, and they were, then stand back and stand by because the administration of Donald Trump will crank that up to 11. So in 2017, Trump terminates the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade with China um, because he felt they were hosing us in trade deals, which I don't disagree with. Of course, Donald Trump's never meant an international agreement he didn't like just throwing in the shredder and this was one of the early ones that he yanked off. So Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, boom, done, fired. Um, second, he started issuing national security levies on steel and aluminum imports from China on the grounds that uh, they were beating us in business and all this. Again, I mean, the bombastic language, take all that out. <clears throat> you know, some of the rhetoric get that out of there, but fundamentally Trump was right. Like China's had been using trade as a weapon for quite a long time, and that's just what they've been doing. And it really until Obama, no president had been addressing it. And I mean, even Obama didn't address the trade stuff nearly. I mean, Obama was militarily very aggressive with China, but he was not trade aggressive with China. At least not to this level. Uh, furthermore, China responded by, of course, levying punitive tariffs on 128 categories of goods imported from the U.S. Trump then decided to call that and match them and say, okay, well, we're going to put 25% tariffs on pretty much all Chinese goods to offset the trade imbalance. Then, at the behest of President Trump and the U.S. government, the uh, Hawi vice chairman and or chairwoman and CFO, Ming, and I'm going to butcher the name, Wan Zhao was arrested in Canada in December of 2018 for supposedly helping China bypass Iranian sanctions and had her charged with bank fraud. Now, eventually the case was dismissed and she went back to China, but it was definitely a fly in the ointment of U.S.-Chinese relations. But again, Trump, if Obama was willing to piss him off, Trump way did not care. Um, in 2020, relations with China took an even more bitter turn when President Trump repeatedly took to calling the COVID-19 pandemic the Chinese plague, which naturally they didn't appreciate. Now, Trump also proceeded to add numerous restrictions to Chinese businesses in the U.S., revoked thousands of Chinese visas, ramped up arms sales to Taiwan massively, and um, he also continued and increased the Obama-era policy of naval patrols through the Ch South China Sea. Now, by 2021, China was real happy to be rid of Donald Trump. They were 
quite excited to see Joe Biden get elected. They initially assumed that Joe Biden was going to be as warm and inviting as your nana during Christmas break when she offers you a plate of cookies. Um, But weirdly, Biden hasn't exactly been the pushover that China was hoping for. He took Trump's freedom uh, freedom of navigation patrols and increased them. He took Trump's China-era trade policies and continued them. He even increased some of the tariffs that Trump had put in place, which is completely not what anyone expected Biden to do. I mean, again, I would not have thought that Biden would take such a hard line on this, but it's like he took what Obama did, took what Trump did, and said, yeah, lads, I'll have a bit more of that too. Yeah, why not? I mean, say what you will about Biden. I'm honestly, again— quite surprised with the hard stance he's taken on China in a number of these things. And if you are someone who agrees that Trump's hard stance on China is understandable and makes sense and all of that, then you've got to be a little impressed that Biden's actually kept it going as he has. Um, If you're someone that disagrees with that, then, well, uh, stay mad. Anyway, Biden even expanded Trump's Executive Order 13959, which prevents American investors from investing in Chinese companies that have identified by the U.S. government as having ties to China's military or surveillance. And in late 2021, the Biden administration even agreed to um, uh, sell nuclear attack submarines to regional allies in Australia, something which has never been done. So, yeah, Biden has weirdly managed to up the ante on a lot of these things in the Trump-initiated trade conflict and the Obama-initiated arms sales. And he's even managed to—I mean, he's just—he's gone a a bridge further than either of them, and I'm frankly surprised. Really, the biggest misstep in the Obama administration thus far has been the— 2023 Chinese spy balloon debacle, which I've touched on before, and for a lot of reasons, I'm not going to go into the whole story here, but the bottom line is that the spy balloon, not shooting it down once it got over land makes sense. It's very hard to shoot down something like that and know where it's going to crash and it's not going to hurt anybody, and at the altitude it's at, you a lot of technical reasons why it's hard to get up there. My whole beef with the spy balloon thing is it should have been shot down before it ever got overland on the Pacific side. But again, I've touched on that at length in prior episodes. I'm not going to do it here. But anyway, that covers the history of the U.S.-China beef. There has been tit-for-tat on both sides. The U.S. has made some pretty big fuck-ups. But to be fair, China has been ruled by a crazy man for a large portion of its um, existence as the People's Republic. And his opinions have massively colored how China sees itself in the world and the U.S. So, hopefully, this two-parter episode has helped give you some context and education on why things are the way they are between the U.S. and China. Hopefully, you found this interesting and entertaining, of course. And, um, you know, yeah, there we go. That's the show. And I've, I've actually run a little bit longer than I intended, but like I said, we had a lot to cover. At any rate, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I don't own my own little red book. So um, don't report me to the, the CCP. Catch you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.